Welcome, everyone, to Caster Calls with Zombie Grub, episode 61. I'm Himur Jorsar, uh, which might be a, a familiar face if you are a real old school StarCraft fan, <laughs> um, but also a familiar face if you have uh, been interested in PUBG, uh, doing some racing stuff, which I believe we'll get into. I'm just going to kind of call it racing stuff because it is a world that is really <laughs> something I don't know much about, aside from, you know, like Rotterdam talking about it. Um, let me just kind of zoning it out a little bit. So we'll get into more depth into, into that. But yeah, uh, so you've been around esports for a very long time and it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I've, um, I've started getting white hairs, which I definitely didn't have when I first got into esports. It's been, um, it's been a long time, I think, uh, coming on and like asking me to come on and made me think when like my first events and when I actually got into it was, and I think, I've concluded it was summer of 2010, I want to say. Okay. Or so, whenever the, was it 2010 or 2011? Like the beta, wing, Wings of Liberty beta. Yeah. So that yeah. July 2010 would be when I picked up the game, <laughs> which means I probably bought a mic and, and started attempting to, I say attempting because that is the correct word starting out, uh, commentate maybe three months later. So it, it's been a while. This is now 12 years and counting. <laughs> If you were there in the beginning of StarCraft 2, you were kind of there at the beginning of the, the birth of, of modern esports or perhaps uh, just uh, whatever you would call like like pre-modern, but not uh, not uh, super, super old. Not, not prehistoric. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Because maybe modern is more like at the onset of all the popular titles we have now, which maybe is more like uh, 2013, 2014. But yeah, mean, the whole... You mean you know. Dota's not a mod for Warcraft anymore? What? I know, it's insane. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Who thought that was going to happen? But um, but no, like the, those those first years, the onset of of Twitch made specifically for all the StarCraft tournaments that were happening on on Justin yeah. TV. It's it's kind of the, the beginning of the the history, I suppose, that would be important to a lot of the the new faces of esports, all the Zoomer generation of esports. I was discussing hey, who, that with who my don't understand year. what StarCraft two matches on own three D were like. Nope, they don't. No, oh, man, that's a. There's a lot of throwback names, man. Talk, talking about ding it and stuff. Um, anyways, uh, so yeah, you've been around and you you've kind of been able to see all of this happen. You were around as well when I think StarCraft was a bit more of a um, pushing others down to get ahead esport, which you know eventually became kind of a smaller, just everyone's okay because. There really isn't a whole lot of competition. Uh, so you saw that as well as, I guess, other esports that would have the same thing happen once they yeah. were deemed the new important esport. There was a lot of um, bad characters. So that that's probably an interesting topic we'll get on to, not that we have to focus on it completely. But the point is, you've been around. You've, uh, you've seen a lot. So I'm interested to hear your story. Uh, and to how you got into, you know, first video games and then how you actually got into the world of esports and your eventual, you know, first paid gig. So lay it on me. Oh, wow. First video games will take me back quite a while. So without without wanting to show my age completely, my first, I think my first video game that I remember playing repeatedly as opposed to like go to an arcade and, you know, play this um, as a one-off is pro was probably a game called Stormlord. Um, okay. for those of you who've never seen one, it was on a five and a quarter inch floppy disk and we booted it from DOS. Um, <laughs> you can go online and look this up and I'm pretty sure I never got past the second level ever. Um, and I probably played that on 
I don't know if it was a 386 or a 486 because desktop computers had names like iPhones back then, guys. Uh, it was great. Um, for a couple of years um, before moving on to different things, sort of going into like secondary school sort of age, uh, maybe primary school, secondary school was when uh, Game Boy started exploding and becoming really popular. And actually, if you go back, I want to say a year or two before or after, but time kind of becomes a bit of an abstract concept so long ago. Um, Digimon, Tamagotchis, and that sort of thing as well helped fuel, uh, even though they're not like video games in the way we think of them, it definitely fueled a digital and being competitive sort of like merging of those two worlds. Um, and I, uh, I think my first experience playing anything competitively was a top-down space shooter game called subspace it was subsequently renamed continuum and i believe it still exists today as a free-to-play game somewhere on the internet um and i also played a text browser game called utopia um which i think is the world's longest running mmorpg and still is <laughs> like they reset the game every three months it's um i don't mind doing a little plug for them they're utopia-game.com now i've stopped playing that now but i did play for 17 years um, wow. and then, so that was everything that was like 2d sort of top down. Uh, -huh. uh, and then back in Hong Kong, um, which I appreciate isn't exactly the esports powerhouse of the universe, but actually we've got some pretty cool players. I played the only two games I've ever played competitively that could be considered esports back before the term was in wide use. I played, uh, rainbow six specifically rogue spear and urban operations so like og rainbow six mm -hmm. almost and i played counter-strike 1.5 competitively which <laughs> a lot of people don't like it's weird because i've been like i've done PUBG, uh i did starcraft 2 for goodness knows how many years and the only the only games i was really competitive at was cs 1.5 and i distinctly remember um 1.6 which for the record by the way was a great game but to my 13 or 14 year old brain was like oh my god you've made hitboxes like this headshots are too easy now i'm rage quitting um and it turns out i had to focus on things like school anyway so it wasn't too bad um that, so that was sort of early years and back then there was a huge um land center sort of culture uh, or net cafe sort of culture it's normal after school or on the weekend to get a whole bunch of people down to these like land centers and enjoy 10 12 hours of gaming at a pop and what was great about that was our parents weren't worried that we were out till like three four o'clock in the morning because they knew exactly where we were and they knew we were completely safe tucked away in our little sort of sweaty <laughs> nerd box and it was all fine um so it, it oh those were the good days man and um, I guess to round it all off, games I played as an enthusiast, and I was pretty good competitively, but I never sought out to win competitions and stuff. The original Command & Conquer Red Alert, as well as Age of Empires 1 and 2, because mythology totally went downhill. Yeah. Don't at me. It it just did. Um, uh, and those were, that's probably what got me kickstarted into RTS, if I'm being mm -hmm. perfectly honest. Um, I sort of went via those games into the brief stint in FPS with Counter-Strike and Rogue Spear. And then uh, picked up Warcraft 3. And through Warcraft 3, I picked up Dota when it was... It wasn't still in beta. I wasn't like a mega early adopter, but I definitely played when it was a mod up to something like six point something. 
I'm sure like more sweaty nerds than me will know exactly what time that is. 6.39 or something like that. I played Dota up to. And it was roughly then, I think, that I was just about, or I was coming back home because I was completing my second year of university at this point. And it was during the summer, or just as I was coming back home for the summer, that I knew StarCraft II was in beta. And I'd never played um, the original StarCraft or Brood War, but I'd watched it, like YouTube videos and stuff on it, and I quite enjoyed it. Um, so I knew it was a game I wanted, and I queued up at the local computer center to make sure I got my pre-order in and I got it on launch day and stuff like that. Um, completely scuppered a family holiday, which they definitely weren't pleased about. Went back to uni and played a lot. Um, sadly, the very first season of StarCraft, uh, before Grandmaster even existed, I hit Master, which means if anyone ever asks whether I've been in the top tier of StarCraft, I can sort of say that and just pretend that that, that makes it all good. <laughs> I, I'm terrible. Um, so from a playing point of view, things went downhill from there. But that's when I started listening to more StarCraft II matches on mm -hmm. YouTube. And there were a couple of reasonably prominent commentators at the time uh, who weren't people you would normally see at live events, but did a lot of YouTube material. And I would listen to these and I would go, they sound all right, but I don't think what they're saying is very accurate. Or I'd, or in one case, I would go, can you at least make it sound entertaining? <laughs> and I, I think it's unfair because these were probably very specific games where it's like, there are actually other things that you could be focusing on as well. And it was at, it was at that point where I realized I don't want to sit here and be like this internet troll and criticize when you could attempt to do the same thing and see if you're any good at it. So that's when I bought my first USB plug-in mic uh, and started doing audio-only casts direct to YouTube. Um, and I probably did that for between four and six months. My God, casting Fourgate versus Fourgate back then oh, meant yeah. you couldn't take a breath in six and a half minutes. It was great. I loved it. Uh <laughs> And then off the back of that was sort of my first journey into esports, but still not paid, um, where a website, uh, some of you may remember, called Playhem TV, asked me to if I would be interested in commentating some $50 an evening cups as a volunteer. Um, and for those of you who don't remember Playhem TV, it is quite a long time ago now. You might remember names like uh, Shamtu, Katu, Robin, also known as Trick Slayer, for those who followed Heroes of the Storm, uh, Zoya, Frodan, Unctious. So we were all part of like that Play MTV crew back in, it's got to be something like mid sort of Q1 2011 through to the start of 2013, something like that. And even when I started getting hired for my first paid gigs, I would still always go back and try and do one or two broadcasts a week for them. I'm not actually 100% sure where all of those people even are these days. I know that Frodan is definitely still in the industry. Mm. I know Shamtu is still in the industry, but is like more involved in pr the production side of things and like behind uh, the camera kind of stuff. Yeah, he helps out with a lot of Brood War stuff. That's but he's right. a, you know, primarily, you know, a de developer, developer, software developer back gotcha. in the front, I don't know. And I know Zoya went on to do a lot of stuff in World of Warcraft. Right. But I'm not 100% sure what he's doing right now, because mm -hmm. uh, I never got into WoW myself, but I knew he was there or thereabouts. But yeah, it's it's weird seeing how like some of the people I met back then 
are still very much involved in the industry in some way or the other now. And it's, it's nice to see that passion continue to carry through. Yeah. That's a, it gets us up to about the, the, the start of like, I guess the big boom of esports. So it's a, a nice place to, to halt for now. Cause I know you have plenty <laughs> of your career to, to talk about literally another 11 years. So, Oh God, um, I feel so old. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I know. Just thinking about those early days being over over a decade old is insane. Um, but I, I remember those, right? Like the, it was just such an insanely popular game because, yeah. I mean, obviously it was the second game to a very popular first game. Uh, it, you know, had that competitive uh, nature to it because they literally designed it and they had, you know, the developers had knowledge of the Brood War esports scene in Korea. Mm-hmm. Um and then it just kind of came alongside. It was one of the first big games that kind of came with that competitive aspect when the internet was very, I think, accessible might be the right word. It wasn't going to like geo sites or trying sure. to find like the RTMP link or something like that. Um, even though you still had to watch GOM TV player in, in 240p, uh, it was still more accessible. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was still it was still more accessible. So it just kind of hit this like perfect moment. And of course, it was also the only esport that was super, super popular. Um, CS and, and Dota and... League of Legends were all, you know, infants at that time. Quickly, quickly yeah. growing, but still. Um, so, yeah, Playhem would happen literally every day. And it would get, like, a decent amount of viewers, too. Because I remember watching the sidebar of Team Liquid, which is what I still do, because I'm a boomer, I guess, um, and seeing all the viewership for for that. So uh, it was. I, I think it actually was kind of worth it to go back, even if it didn't pay you. Because this was also going to be back in the time where you didn't get paid for a lot of stuff, even, even some of the really big stuff, it was absolutely seen as more of a opportunity to, to come on and potentially get paid later. And when you did get paid, it was not a lot. Um, I think uh, people who listen to this podcast, you guys might have heard some of the other OGs talk about how much they actually got paid. So you guys know anyone out there in the internet who's like, back in 2010, day nine was paid $2,000 a, a day. Buddy, not even for the weekend. <laughs> he would have retired in 2014 if that were true. Come on, <laughs> exactly. man. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, this was the the good old Wild West that you found yourself uh, rather uh, invested into. You were kind of making the right moves to potentially be brought up. So, um, yeah, you're working as a basically a community commentator. And I know you do that for a little while, but then uh, you get bigger and bigger, I suppose, community casts kind of become uh, a staple of the, I want to say like B-Stream commentators, not to be like derogatory or anything like that, but just no, not at all. hard to break into the main lineup of people who had actually come over from Brood War and just, you know, had uh, positions like in Korea where they just were going to be popular. So what was your next step then? Did you decide to try and really make the esports thing work or were you pretty keen on just kind of having it as a hobby? So, um, <laughs> that's actually a multi-year question, but I, I will explain why. Um, off, off the back of Playhem, I started getting invited to uh, become a community caster on the B stream. So it's funny we were talking about B streams for uh, a couple of dream hacks and the odd IEM as well. Um, and back then, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment in Chelsea, which sounds really nice uh, for those of you who know the UK in London, but it was also like a big council block. So don't get your hopes up where in order to afford it, um, I moved into the living room and sublet out the bedroom. So literally my entire life was in one room. And because of that, uh, I had 
my desk, like my playing setup at the foot of my bed. Now, initially I just had a microphone in front of me, so that was fine. But eventually I had to get a webcam as well. And that, um, spawned a couple of memes, shall we say, back before we even called them memes. Uh, in fact, Jess, I've just emailed you one, so you know what I'm talking about from a, one of the DreamHack ISO opens, I want to say, uh, all the way back in the day where Reddit would absolutely (laughs) rip into, uh, me casting in front of an immaculately made bed, because if the bed is 90% of your background, it's gotta be, you gotta make your bed, right? Uh, they also correctly predicted that the rest of the room wasn't quite as immaculate as the webcam made it seem. Uh, So I did a lot of my casts from there for a while. And my first paid gig was a UK-based gig uh, at Insomnia. Um, I would eventually also... I can't remember if it was at this event or my second Insomnia, so apologies if I get this wrong, but it's also where I met Maddles. Um, And it was Insomnia 45, um, which I... I want to say Sting beat Bling in the finals but I can't actually remember if that was 45 or not. I, so I got paid my accommodation, which was an unused uh, room in a student hall. So literally like basic bed with a sheet and that's it. And a communal bathroom between like five other members of staff that were uh, staying in those rooms. Uh, I got my train ticket paid for um, and I got a hundred pounds uh, which was to my university student brain mega. And that was, that was my first break. And I say it was my first break because it felt like an online cast. It was very much like a desk setup. Uh, it, it wasn't a big stage or anything like that. I just happened to be commentating from the event. But the thing I remember most about it is actually feeding off the energy of hearing the people cheering for the player close to me nowadays if you hear too much of that as a professional you'd be like oh my goodness can we soundproof this thing please uh but back then i remember almost being in awe of it and that carrying me through and off the back of that broadcast i have to assume it's that rather than play him but i guess it could have been both um esl contacted me asking if i would be interested to do an event in ifa berlin i don't remember the title of the event uh i remember i was doing it with um ryan ryanerson and james carroll so Kalaris, and the three of us uh would take turns hosting and the other two would cast and we'd rotate every best of three so it definitely wasn't a set roles kind of thing um so that was my first international event that happened quite soon after insomnia and i'm still doing all the playhem stuff in the community cast for dreamhack in the background um, and I don't think it was James's first event, uh, but I think it was near the start of his career as well. So, it, um, yeah, it, it was an awful lot of fun. And I know that, uh, David Ranierson is now also a software developer, but occasionally dabbles in esports. So, uh, everyone's still sort of hanging around the periphery and I got paid more for that broadcast. Um, nowhere near what like we would consider being paid as professionals by today's standards, but it was enough to uh, impress somebody to the point where I got contacted asking if I'd be willing to do uh, IEM. And in the same week, I think, 
I had an email asking if I could do IEM and a dream hack. So that's where things really started to kick off because um, back then there were at least three, possibly up to five DreamHack events a year. And there were certainly three or four IEM events as well. And while I don't remember the exact order, I know that um, I I would eventually get to a point where I feel like I had done every DreamHack and IEM event for something like a two-year period, sort of 2013 to 2015. Mm. Um, and I remember needing to ask several tournament organizers if they would be willing to change my flight so that I could fly directly from one gig to another because I didn't have enough time to fly back to London first. So I flew directly from uh, Las Vegas for the IPL4, IPL5? IPL4 season finals directly to IEM Singapore, for example. Um, But in between all of that, there's one more big community cast, which is why I definitely don't want to thumb down uh, any of the community cast stories and arguably the biggest community cast I've ever done in Starcraft two was off the back of a trip where I did three different things. I participated online in, uh, what IGN called their caster search content contest there. They were looking for casters for IPL five. Is it four or five? If I use those numbers interchangeably, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, and I remember they had eight finalists, but I knew that a big consideration for their caster search was that they didn't really want to spend a lot of money on transport and accommodation, flying people over and stuff. So of the eight finalists, I was the only person outside of North America. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, cool, it means you're pretty good at this, but it also means you better not mess this up. <laughs> uh, and I did three events in that one trip which um, I went to the IPL offices and did a, with Kevin Nocky, I did a best of nine fight club series. I don't remember who was playing, but I remember like I was, I was a guest and on the Saturday I did fight club with Kevin Nocky, best of nine. And on the Sunday with Doha, I did the GSL team arena challenge. I remember FX open were playing because I remember casting Lenok, I think but I don't remember who they were faced up against. Um, and I still have a GSTL t-shirt upstairs somewhere that Doa gave me uh, that day after visiting the uh, IGN offices, which was really cool. I slept on Kevin Naki's couch, which is, um, I, I don't know if you've spoken to him about it, but it, it's the esports couch. I think more than more than 50 people who are either casters or involved in esports in some way have slept on that couch. I don't know if him and Catherine still have it. I slightly kind of low-key hope they don't. Um, (laughs) uh, So that was great. And I went straight from there to the MLG Spring Championships uh, in Anaheim, uh, where I was casting the B-Stream. And it was the coolest B-Stream cast ever. Because this was the event where Kespa sent their Brood War pros. Oh, to do exhibition matches for StarCraft II. So while you had like Tastosis and Mr. Bitter and Total Biscuit doing the uh, doing all the main stage, I think Rob Simpson was there, but don't quote me on that. Day Nine was definitely there as well. Yeah. Um, I remember because he'd run backstage like a maniac in between his cast, high-fiving everyone. I'm not saying he was on something, but he was fun. Uh, <laughs> it was great. 
uh, I cast Calm versus Bisu, which mm. back then especially is like, oh my god, this is proper like Flash Jadong level top billing. And then we watched two Terran players make 15 barracks and literally pump out Marines and just send them into the middle of the map. It was like atrocious compared to what we would expect to watch even a couple of months later once they'd moved over because they were so their mechanics and the way they were looking at these was so deep-rooted in brood war there was none of this oh just control all of this at once no 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 we have to do everything individually because that's how our muscle memory works <laughs> and just watching two it, it i'm not saying it could have been like it it was like watching two silver level terrans play against each other but on the battlefield itself it was gm level micro it was weird, <laughs> really weird. Um, I did that, and then finally the uh, the GESL, which was a one-off LAN event there uh, that happened just after MLG. Uh, sadly, it was short-lived, um, but it was also a really fun event. It was more of an intimate atmosphere, about two, 300 people watching, and it was just there as a StarCraft II event with some like DJ set up and uh, merch available. It was pretty cool. Hmm. Um, and... At the end of that trip was when I was confirmed to do the uh, IPL finals. And that's what, I wouldn't say kickstarted the travel because I had done one or two DreamHack events by then, but that was properly the point where I was fly I flew into Vegas for those finals, went straight to IEM Singapore, came back to London for a week, had a different event. I think it might've been a DreamHack after that. And the next year and a half, two years of my life, were realistically built around how do I make sure I constantly have time off of work by then or um, time off of doing other stuff to mold around this is DreamHack, this is IEM, this is a different event and I'm like trying to make time for everything. Um, so yeah, that was an interesting phase of my life because it, from an esports point of view, it was kind of same, same to the outside. It was very much, I'm continuously doing these events, trying to hone my craft, trying to get better. But behind the scenes, I was getting a full-time job, trying to make sure that I could juggle both, trying to make sure that I don't mess up in one place or the other. And it was actually quite transformative. Yeah. And you said that's a multi-year battle as well, that you went through the same thought processes. Yeah. So I... In 2013, I joined a digital marketing agency. And uh, long story short, um, Google don't do, or I shouldn't say don't do in case it's partially not true these days, but to my knowledge, Google don't do their own advertising, which is good because they own the platforms they're advertising on, right? So outsourcing it to a third party like makes sense. And from a transparency and like non-monopoly point of view, it just makes sense. And I happened to join the agency that was doing uh, a lot of Google's advertising for them. So when it came to learning a new skill and understanding what makes things tick in the world of digital marketing, you can't get much better than the budgets. In fact, you can't get better than the budgets that Google set aside for that sort of thing uh, without revealing too much. It meant that like things that other even blue chip companies would learn in a couple of months, we'd learn in eight hours like that sort of level of, um, so it was really fun, but really challenging. And there were a lot of late nights in the office, um, trying to make things work across a whole bunch of different Google products and some non Google stuff as well. And I remember six months into the job. So I got the job middle of, I want to say middle of 2013. 
Um, so I'd, I'd left uni um, 2004 through 2008. I worked for myself because I did an import-export business out of my bedroom, which is definitely don't need to go in. Basically, my bedroom was full of boxes and I was selling stuff online. But I was really good with SEO. So I had a lot of people coming through to the website and buying it. And that's how I sustained my lifestyle. And my mom was extremely disapproving of this because she desperately <laughs> wanted me to get a real job. Uh, <laughs> That's what the kids so, are all doing now anyways. So they cop, it, it, like, it is. Money now. Like back then I sold virtual items on Diablo 2. <laughs> um, like before before the before the word soulbound was an idea in anyone's head, I was making money <laughs> off Diablo 2. Um, but I, I definitely didn't gold farm in WoW, so you don't have to hate me for that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the first real job, quote unquote, 2013. Six months into that, I went, I really enjoy this job but I also really enjoy casting and I want to make sure I set time aside to do things like um, VOD reviews, network with people in the industry, make sure that I'm in the right place at the right time in terms of seizing opportunities because just being good back then didn't get you anywhere and now arguably doesn't get you anywhere either. You still need to know who you, you need to know who to speak to and when and why and how you present yourself. Um, I need time to do all of those things. So I made myself a promise. I said that, at the point where my work in esports reached, even for one year only, two-thirds of my income on my day job, I think in the back of my mind, I, I would have been happy with half. I go full-time and I pursue mm. it full-time. Um, so I continued, and this is like, we're now talking like start of 2014 kind of territories. So I was still doing the dream hacks, the IEMs. There was that one tournament in... I want to say DreamHack Bucharest, where I was casting the grand finals with Apollo. And because we had gone on too long, like some of the matches just took ages because <laughs> Broodlords, um, the heavy metal concert in the hall next door, which was literally a cloth curtain <laughs> separating us from them, started at like 10 p.m. on the dot or something after a 12 hour day. And we realized halfway through game one, after game one or game two, after this started, it was actually impossible for us to continue the broadcast. Mm. So somewhere on Twitter is, um, is me typing at 170 words per minute, constantly feeding tweets to the world about what was going on in these grand finals because we couldn't be on the mic anymore. Wow. Oh, that was good fun. Uh, but so through all of this, I was trying to juggle the day job. And I said, once I hit this point, I'm going to put all my chips in and do esports full time. And then I I still liked my day job. It wasn't something that I was desperate to get away from. It was just a milestone that I knew I had to hit. The problem was I started getting promoted. <laughs> so I, I I got promoted a couple of times. I ended up getting approached by a rival agency to join them at director level. And from a ignore whether I'm casting or not, it's one of those things where if you put your thinking cap on, it's a no-brainer. Like you, yeah. you, you say yes to things like that when your career um, takes you in that direction. And this is probably now mid-2015. And I would say that's the point where I made the realization that in order for me to continue working and be considered any sort of top tier in the gaming industry as a commentator... Um, I would need to find a way to make those two parts of my life work side by side. And mm -hmm. because I was no, I was no longer in a position where I felt like 
I wanted one side or the other to take over because, because I wasn't trying to get away from my job. I also didn't want to devote less time to casting because I loved it so much. So the solution is find time, make it work. Um, and from about that point onwards was kind of when I realized that this is how things are going to be. Um, okay. yeah. Is that how it's been for the last eight years? Is that was 2014? It has been, yes. Um, okay. And it actually came at quite an opportune time because, and again, possibly slightly muddled with dates, so apologies if it's slightly off, but I want to say in 2015 was when um, Blizzard made the decision to um, have a permanent studio in Burbank for StarCraft Two. Okay. And at that point... For North American StarCraft II, they hired in-house talent and had people there full-time. Right. And at the same time, mirroring that decision, uh, ESL did the same thing for Europe mm -hmm. and had a number of talent, who are brilliant, by the way, absolutely no slight on them, join them full-time. I know Kolaris and Todd were two of them, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there, were a third, there was a third or fourth person as well. Um, so it meant that that was kind of a point where it was a weird one for me because I always make sure to seek as much feedback as I can get from the tournament organizers and my peers after each of the events uh, that I did. And despite all the good feedback coming in and a lot of a, oh, cool, can't wait to see you for the next one. Um, after those decisions were made, it's like you got ghosted by everyone. It was really weird. So nothing really happened. I'd love to be able to say there was big drama or a big controversy, but honestly, overnight, if you were a contractor, it kind of dried up pretty quickly. There was space for the occasional ex-pro player to join a panel as an analyst. Um, but aside from that, that was it. Yeah. So it didn't hit me as hard as it could have for other people in a similar situation because my day job and my career was actually going reasonably well at that point. But it, emotionally, it was still really frustrating to know that you're doing a good job and then not get called back. Mm. Um, but that's, as, as I've come to learn to an extent, that's the nature of the industry. And it, it's just a thing that happens from a business perspective and from a, we want to make sure that we can uh, deliver continuity, the best possible broadcast, at a cost that doesn't break the bank, I can completely see the appeal of Blizzard and ESL at the time wanting mm -hmm. to say, cool, let's invest money to build a permanent studio and make sure we have the same people coming back. And the solution to doing that um, was, uh, I'd, I can only speak on ESL's case because I knew less about North America, was to make sure that our full we have full-time casters, we've got them across all of our events, but they could do other games as well. And it meant that uh, the casters were constantly getting work. It meant that uh, they were able to provide good level commentary across all of their titles. It made a lot of sense, but I could also tell, and this is the part where it becomes speculation for me. Mm. I can also tell this is the part where if I had gone full-time casting and I had done something like that, that's where the passion starts like to seep out. Because if you're employed full-time to do that, to an extent that's living the dream. And I would say... We have a neighbor's cat who does exactly the same thing. You'll occasionally see a black tail move across the screen. <laughs> um, 
I, I should clarify, I don't own any cats, but four of them just like to freely wander in and out. It's weird. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, if, if that were me, I would love doing some events and then I'd be like, oh, but I also have to do a, like next weekend, I have to get sent to do this as well. And yeah. you're being paid a salary to do it. So you're not getting paid anymore to go do all of these other events. And it got to a point where, again, speculation, it looked like um, some people who maybe enjoy one or two games were casting six or seven games. Right. And it was like, that's fine because it's a job. But I feel like that would eat into, um, I, I, in fact, I knew it would eat into what passion looks like for me. Yeah. So it's, it's a tricky one because at, at the same time, Oh yeah, on the one hand, people would kill for that kind of opportunity. I'm absolutely not like shoving negativity that way at all. But on the other, I could quite quickly see that if offered that opportunity, I would love it at the beginning and I could see it starting to eat away at me. So yeah. I'm reasonably happy with staying the way I did, but it also meant that everything StarCraft II dried up overnight and I had to look for other things that piqued my interest. Right. Yeah, that was a big conversation. Um, it is a big conversation, I should say, about whether you should have like a set number of commentators. Um, uh, upside is that obviously they have a steady amount of work. They can really hone on their craft. They can sure. build chemistry, um, not just with a particular co-caster, but even with the production can be a benefit. Yes. Um, but the downside, of course, is the... Um, uh, the the well boring aspect of it, I suppose, doing a lot of those, as you said, the studio gigs, which really aren't the best. I mean, it's kind of nice to be at least be there with your 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 pals, your co-casters, but it's not the same as going to an event, doing you know something with a crowd, and having no. that excitement of a weekend no. event as well. Yeah, um, and you don't have any room for for new talent. So, you know, a lot of people will say that the perfect mixture is something where there's like a main league, and then there's a bunch of like smaller stuff happening but that would only ever happen on a certain scale even for the biggest esports you know even valorant they have a main league it's a very popular game how many of their like kind of side things are going to have big offline events not too many of them and certainly for starcraft in 2015 uh you're right that would basically be nothing i mean they didn't have that many commentators for the studio gigs to begin with compared to some other stuff where there's like six plus there was i think literally yeah. three <laughs> i think i think so it's yeah. like two people couldn't make it it was just like one person solo casting it was kalara solo casting for 12 hours um and <laughs> oh, then those were the days <laughs> yeah and then there was there was like nothing else beyond that because it was totally under blizzard's control which you know worked with esl sure. uh so anyways that was you're spot on like i'm i'm kind of fleshing this out just to clarify that this isn't any type of saltiness there is no no like, no, well, no no there's like six other people doing other jobs at that time no there really wasn't there was people who made an online name for themselves like a tournament organizer like base trade tv or popular mm. streamers um but basically that was it there was like this huge divide between what the a-listers were doing if you want to call them that and what the b-stream commentators were doing and, and the latter didn't really exist kind yes. of at that point uh, exactly um, it, it, yeah. it's more it's more how do i put it like early 20s salty jaro would be like oh i didn't get called back and i keep getting good feedback people love having me there what's wrong and it's it's not that at all it's um it's the economics and the sort of higher level this is where we want to go with mm -hmm. the title like the corporate decisions that sort of trickle down and lead to these as consequences. So um, 
it took me, I think it's fair to say, especially for StarCraft 2, because I still love the game to bits, and I would hop back in a heartbeat. No question about it. But it it took me a year or two to properly develop the, no, seriously, you don't need to just tell yourself this. It really isn't personal. It's just like, this is the way the industry operates. And from a point of view of yourself as on-screen talent, what you're seeing is a tiny piece of the puzzle, which is important. It's your livelihood. It's like, you want to be on camera. You want to interact with your colleagues, your fans. It's important. It's your world. But in the big scheme of um, <clears throat> financing and sustaining a game title as an esport, it is one piece of the puzzle. Um, so does it suck that those decisions feel like that they're being made without you in mind? Yes. But does uh, does older Boomer Jaro look back at that and go, oh, I kind of get it. I think the answer to that's also yes, to be fair. Yeah. Unfortunately, you were in a position that, uh, as you said, you had your your day job to fall back on. Many others were at that point uh, forced to seriously consider their other options. And right. uh, if they could still be a full-time esports, then they'd have to move on. And there was definitely a few games. Um, I mean, Legacy of the Void actually came out at that time. So if you really wanted to make a push towards being like an online content creator, you could have. Um Heroes of the Storm. Overwatch, I think, was announced in 2015. So people were really setting their sights on that one. Heroes of the Storm was still going and not just abruptly ending <laughs> like it eventually did. Um, and then a bunch of other games, uh, of course. And, and PUBG came out, uh, I want to say, within a, a year or two of that, right? So because PUBG, I always think of it as a new game. But then I'm always reminded that it's really not. It's uh, Is it not still an alpha? What? Yeah, it's, it's weird. I'm still not playing with like friends, having no idea what we're doing like six years ago. Um, but no, like, so that came out, right? And I know you got involved in that. You're still involved with that. So you uh, picking up gigs, going to places. Um, and then you also all apparently had a lot of experience with Formula One. So um, just <laughs> <Yes>. to <laughs> quickly, I guess, kind of put a ribbon, put a bow on the the career here. Can you kind of speed through the other esports that you've done, the other type of, I guess, competitive uh, career points in your life? Yeah. The oh, Wow. Um, where do I begin? So every, every title that you've mentioned, I've touched in some way. Mm -hmm. Heroes of the Storm is a, a unique one for me because I started producing some content and I did a couple of events for Heroes of the Storm. Um, coming from a Dota background, I obviously saw that like, I appreciated the differences, but I'm thinking, oh, this is like an easy version of Dota. But when uh, when when you get a five stack that's really good with their teamwork, it's actually impressively high still, the skill ceiling. So I was mm -hmm. fine watching it. Heroes was possibly the only title I've ever worked on where I made a decision not to actively pursue uh, additional events because of other talent, which is really weird. Um, so Heroes and to an, a smaller extent, StarCraft 2, and I won't elaborate on this too much, but let's just say um, I was really shocked by the way some talent treated production people off camera. So it was okay. like perfectly professional on camera and getting to the point where like mice and keyboards were being thrown around off camera and swearing at staff. And I was like, I don't really want to be in the same room as stuff like this happening. It's not healthy. Well, I'm not the one receiving the abuse, so it, it was way worse for other people, but I was thinking this can't possibly be a healthy environment for me to be in either. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I dabbled in it, but ultimately chose not to actively pursue. Um, and when Overwatch was announced, there were shadows of StarCraft all over this because I admittedly buy it a number of hours because of time difference, but I cast the first Overwatch LAN. So at TakeOver, and I, I was reasonably involved with Overwatch in the beta. I uh, cast a lot of online stuff. Um, I, I did the first Overwatch LAN, did the Face It E-League $300,000 open, like at the infancy of Overwatch. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember like watching Seagulls rise to prominence, for example, and uh, North American organizations mixing it up with EU on a daily basis. It was a lot of fun. And then Overwatch League got announced. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were conversations about being involved in uh, Overwatch League. But ultimately, it was a slightly better handled version, from my personal perspective, of what happened with StarCraft. Which is, right, well, we know where we're going to be based. We know where the studio is. This is where you're going to have to move. You're going to have to literally like up and leave and move over to the States for us to even consider thinking about using you for anything. Right. Um, and because of the way uh, Blizzard wanted to manage Overwatch League, so very much like in-housing it and making it their thing, there weren't really tournaments outside of that anymore. Not until they created Contenders sometime later. Um, so Overwatch actually dried up the same the same way that StarCraft did, in, in more of a structured way and in more of a planned way. But the same thing happened overnight after getting quite heavily involved in the early days, um, which was frustrating until PUBG came out. And by this point, um, I don't classify Overwatch as a shooter in the same way I would classify like yeah. Counter-Strike as a shooter, for example. Like, um, it, it's just a different genre. It, we're, not tr- we're not aiming for realism here or anything like that, right? No. Um, so when PUBG came out and I started playing the game, I was legitimately taken aback by how much I enjoyed playing. Uh, I don't think I enjoyed playing a game where it was like sort of game of inches, one shot can kill you kind of thing since CS 1.5. Because, you know, in between then I dipped into Dota, I did a lot of Starcraft 2, Heroes of the Storm, yeah, even did a bit of Hearthstone at some point. And then I've recently come off the back of Overwatch. So I was expecting to go back into the RTS space and like rediscover my love there and see uh, what other opportunities there were. And then I realized I actually really enjoy playing PUBG. Um, so I picked up PUBG in uh, in the beta. I've cast a ridiculous number of games, but to the premier broadcast, I was still a little bit of a latecomer. I hadn't, uh, I wasn't in a position where I'd spoken to the right people early enough in the game's infancy to be there from the get-go but i still flew myself out to events and did like interviews with the players and things like that within europe even at events i wasn't working mm-hmm. um always thoroughly enjoyed it and i thought okay this is like comparable levels of enjoyment that i used to have to starcraft 2 which is excellent i'm gonna keep going with this uh ended up getting a bunch of gigs and uh it culminated with i was uh, hosting the world championship at the end of last year for example um which was absolutely lovely um and it's um it continues to be a really fun game for me to put efforts into and i'm I'm looking forward to hopefully doing more there next year but throughout this you you touched a bit on racing and i'll this one's weird 
I'll try and fly through. Um, although to someone watching, it's probably like, hang on a second, where did this come from? Um, so in 2007, um, so to backtrack all the way back to my university days, um, it, my degree is uh, aerospace materials engineering. I before esports, so we're talking like between 2007 and 2010, although it wasn't continuous for three years or anything like that. Um, I, I did a stint at McLaren F1. Um, so I was a stress analyst and materials engineer on the McLaren Formula One race team down in Woking. Um, so what that basically entails is when the cars finish driving fast in Silverstone and something breaks on them, they get like trucked or choppered down to the factory or whatever. And I'm the guy in charge of chopping them up, looking them, looking at it under a microscope and telling them what went wrong and how to build it better next time. So it, it less glamorous than you think, but the factory is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, also back then Lewis Hamilton was actually a legit, really fun guy to talk to. Like had a few conversations with him outside the staff canteen and stuff. This was like pre-world titles and stuff like that. Super humble. I suspect maybe not so much these days, but I don't know. Um, he hasn't got my number on speed dial or anything like that. <laughs> but never the two worlds met. I was always an enthusiast for uh, for racing. I raced go-karts competitively while I was at university. Um, it probably comes as no surprise to anyone who's ever taken one look at me that I'm clearly too heavy to be competitive at uh, go-karting nowadays. I'm not a 40-kilo featherweight zoom, doesn't really work I've, I've i've literally got the racing rig set up right here for when i when i do stream like formula one and stuff like that so i've always really enjoyed it i've just never worked in it and um more recently in my career sort of side by side with PUBG, i picked up the logitech mclaren g challenge um which was back then i don't think it is this year um but it i worked with them for four years they were the world's largest sim racing competition over fifteen thousand people were like competing to be in the grand finals and stuff like that it was really really good fun um and i actually got to put some of my like racing knowledge and expertise to good use i never thought that would ever happen so i did that like 2017 through to last year and ended up um dipping my toes in the television space because during the covid lockdown and the pandemic uh, Formula E had to cancel the season because it became too logistically difficult to fly everyone around. And they had something called the Race at Home Challenge where they still got the grid of Formula E together and they built a Formula E-specific mod in an online, like, I would say game, but really it was a sim. Mm -hmm. um, and they still had virtual races with the commentary team and stuff like that. And I was hired as a commentator to uh, and an analyst to break down from an esports point of view, Formula E during COVID, um, which was incredible. Very different from esports. So I was on like BBC Eurosport, a bunch of international channels. I think officially there were 25. I don't know what they are, um, but it was really cool. But going from an environment where at a dream hack, as I'm sure you can appreciate, someone in your ear just goes, you need to fill for about 45 minutes. And that's it. <laughs> and you just talk to an environment where you say, coming into the next segment, you have to fill for exactly 39 seconds and we're going to break. And I'm sat there going, but I've got three things I want to talk. And zoom. Instantly like yeah. trying. It is such a different environment, completely yeah. removed from esports. The knowledge is there, like knowing what to do with my voice and what's important is there, but the timescales and how tight everything has to be and how well packaged it all has to be yeah. is like night and day compared to what 
we're used to for say a typical online production. It was incredible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've talked to a couple of people who have done like um, quote unquote real production, you know, like uh, outside esports production, and that's that's a point sure. that they've talked about. But the one thing that always sticks out in my brain because you know he was hilarious guys in control talking about it. He went on like you know big news TV show, forget which one it was, with Mike Morheim. Yeah. Back you know, but I don't forget when <laughs> I think before the Olympics, actually, because that was the talking point, if I remember correctly. Anyways, and that was like, you know, big name production. And yeah. uh, he would tell us stories about how he was just like, it was just crazy fast. And they were constantly talking in his ear as well, which I think I personally have not actually heard anyone else um, working in, in StarCraft 2 and Valorant and interviewing people who have said, please talk to me more, producer. Uh, almost always, if anything, it's going to be like one word, like get, get me the like. You okay, need a cue, next. exactly. Yeah, and that's it. You know, very few people are going to be like, I wish they would explain to me exactly what's going on, because it is a skill to be able to hear that and talk as if you're not trying to listen, <laughs> which is apparently what the hundred do all the time. Having a so, co-caster is so useful because if your producer's talking oh, yeah. in your ear while your co-caster's talking, you can half listen to both conversations. Mm-hmm. But if you've ever had, if anyone who's watching this has ever had someone talk in their ear while they're talking, it is an order of magnitude more difficult to oh, continue yeah. to focus on the point that you're trying to get across because you can't yeah. do that and focus on, on listening at the same time. It's It's so hard to do that. Yeah, exactly. And he would just say that they just constantly talked in his ear, sometimes not at yeah. him. So he'd have to also like differentiate, like, are they talking to me to do something? You're talking to the other guy to do something? Um, so he, of course, he had a much funnier way of putting it. But I just remember that because I, I always thought like, okay, if I ever have that happen, if I ever get to that point, I'm probably going to be absolutely just floored. I'm going to be so caught off guard and confused because um, yeah. it is uh, a skill set. I mean, I, 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 I guess the primary thing, right, is that the uh, the constraints are very different. So that's always going yes. to be why it is different. So I don't think esports will ever really have to worry about that. But I don't know; it could change. The more we get put on, if we ever do want to go on, like you know, television, I suppose we seem pretty content. To, uh, I feel like that age of esports being like we need to make sure we get on television, we need to make sure we get on cable is like kind of over. I don't know if you agree. It's so my my day job works in marketing and media so yeah. this is sort of where where they kind of cross over as well and i think i'm i'm tending to agree we're moving away from an age well we have broadly moved away from an age of linear consumption of content meaning here is your content here is your break here is your content here is your break um at a top level services like netflix amazon prime disney plus are saying no 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 you can watch what you want when you want it and it, gotcha. The the big reason to want to move to a linear medium to fit in with mainstream TV, which is still huge, by the way, is because uh, the advertising dollars associated with it would make esports infinitely more sustainable. Okay. But you can't guarantee a match would last fifteen minutes, right? Uh, and then you can go to a scheduled commercial break. Like there, there were so many fundamental things that could and would break. Um. This is one of the things that Overwatch initially was attempting to solve, right? Because I can't remember the name of the TV station, but even the Face It E-League was was on TV, was on cable in the US briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea being, uh, oh, if everything was fast paced and matches were finished quite quickly, we can use 
uh, a casters or desk as variable fill time to hit right. a specific point where we can go to a commercial break and we could keep going, not realizing, of course, that diva players are ridiculously stubborn. Um, <laughs> and there have been attempts to try and moderate for this, but esports is some way off being able to do that. The good news is the rest of the world is arguably moving on. It's no longer yeah. a 15 minute chunk followed by three minute commercials and 15 minute chunk anymore. So as our media consumption patterns continue to change outside of esports, I think we're going to accidentally find that esports becomes more integrated into whatever we want to do with it next as a broadcast medium, naturally, because we're no longer trying to shoehorn it into TV. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's um, very well put. And uh, obviously you've got the expertise in there. So that's... Um... Very interesting, actually. Uh, I do wonder often how you know competitive sports on TV actually do work in that fashion. I, I have watched American football just by you know consequence of being an American, you kind of see in the background a lot. And obviously, there's a lot of times where they will, uh, uh, I guess, fit in breaks like during like the timeouts, for instance, or even sure. between plays. Um, so I imagine there's something there. But then I've also heard. Maybe from someone on this podcast, actually, or maybe just from Europeans who moved to America, um, European football, the true football, uh, how that is so difficult for like American programs to air because the amount of breaks is very different. Yes. For, for, yeah, between the two sports, but then also between the two like home production, right? Like European ad breaks and American ad breaks are, are very different. Yeah, so anyways, it, um, it, it sounds like there's people working on such problems and they do have solutions. And I wonder if they've ever been involved in esports. If they if they came into Overwatch <laughs> League, as you, as you were saying, they tried to kind of hit that and were unsuccessful hmm. and kind of had to admit that it wouldn't work out. It's very sports specific because Amer American football and some sports are like this as well, to be fair, although global football isn't one of them, uh, where there are frequent breaks in play. Mm -hmm. and Instead of needing an ad every 15 minutes, the way American football, my understanding of it, is the way they're being flexible is they're saying, you have to show this many ads within this many minutes of each other. Now, yeah. if there's an opportunistic moment where there's a 20-second break in play, you can instantly take the break and play this ad and come back, and that's that obligation done, and you've got a check checkbox worth of things that have to happen before halftime some, in some capacity. And, th and that works. Um, but if you only have a break in the game at halftime, like soccer football right. um suddenly all of that goes out the window or if you're i'm trying to think like frequent breaks um actually a lot of american sports tend to have frequent breaks i was about to say baseball or basketball basketball the the breaks are really really quick so you yeah. might show like a quick ad as someone's getting ready to take a free throw for example you can shoehorn 15 20 seconds in there football i yeah i can't see that being a thing uh Cricket to an extent in between overs, possible. Okay. Tennis, yeah. again, unless it's like in between games. So it's a little bit more prescribed, but there's such a wide spectrum across the mm -hmm. world of sport and actually across the world of esports as well. Because there, yeah. there are many esports like um, fighting games where there are breaks in between rounds where you can probably shoehorn something in, but good luck doing that in a game of league. Yeah, right? yeah, no, League, yeah, no, you're totally right. And I'm thinking like, well, CSGO, uh, I think when I watch it, I do get the most, um, uh, 
advertising sponsor mainstream vibe. Oh, it's very specific, okay. but that's yeah, what yeah, I'm choosing yeah. to go with. Because I know Overwatch League, they kind of did the suit and tie thing to begin with, and they did try to appeal to some of the the, the networks. I think they were on like Disney XD or something at one point. Um, but that's a different type of appealing to what we would consider mainstream. No, for CSGO, the way that they brand things, the way that they have their, you know, their their um their halves swap over and it's yes. just like this really quick throw into pretty quick commercials and you're right back into the action uh, or their their little like mini sponsor shout outs while they're waiting for the guys to pick their guns it just it's very clean it's very snappy but it is it is chock full of advertising but it just it feels like a part of the show a little more like i think yes mainstream uh broadcasting of of competitive traditional sports i have to be so specific when we talk about these things i'm getting getting lost in my own like descriptions of it um but anyways well so it can I be split down so that. easily into bite-sized chunks right because even when you go yeah. into overtime you can stop at the end of 30 rounds have a quick sponsor segment and come back to overtime it it doesn't artificially extend the time without ads if you don't want yeah. it to so there's so much more flexibility yeah, and I think we, exactly because CS:GO is very—it's very undetermined how long the actual match will go because overtime is just so common nowadays. But sure. um, the actual rounds, I think, are much easier to guess, like how long those are going to go. Where in StarCraft, I feel like between the two players, even if you put them on the same maps every single time, they'd be wildly different results, and you can't yeah. fit an ad while we're waiting for the Broodlords to attack each other. You know, <laughs> or back in Although, the Roach v Roach, yeah, part of the yeah. storm meta. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that is absolutely a problem. I just, I was kind of pondering out loud, you know, I wonder if there are people who are literally their jobs are designed to try and, and fit the square into the circle, right? Fit the European global football, I guess is a better word for it, um, into American football-esque ad timings, uh, well, as well as the traditional sports and the esports. We're starting to get some way towards it. Like Amazon and Twitch are starting to experiment with shrinking the um, the streamer's screen and having ads right. show on the yeah. bottom and right, for example. Mm-hmm. And that sort of advertising where it doesn't detract from the action is exactly the kind of thing that could work in a, it could be 10 minutes or an hour kind of esport like StarCraft 2, as long as you have certain obligations that you can hit in between, right. uh, in between breaks. The... The main issue you're then overcoming is StarCraft II tournaments are, we're here to watch this all day. And it's very difficult to package it up into a, this is the one hour time slot or the one hour 30 time slot allocated to this team versus this team, which traditional TV would still dictate is useful. And where esports like CSGO are still the closest to fitting Mm -hmm. into that bracket. Yeah. Actually, really, again, pondering out loud, I don't know if there's any discussion here, but I am thinking of the way that pro league and and Korean broadcasting would work out so well, too, because that was legitimately back in its heyday, um, bigger than like every sport that they had. So it was on TV. It was actually on TV for a very long time. It was really good. Yeah. Um, And it was super cool. But then I also am wondering how that worked out. And clearly, Korean broadcasting is going to just be different on those uh those needs well, but uh, they made it work with pro league it always looked like a very professional high quality product it was never just about the game that was the draw for pro league for me yes of course we can go in and see some of the best players on earth beat the crap out of each other in game but i remember like the team leagues where 
um, eight players would be sat on chairs and you'd interview like each one of them, have some like sound bites to trash talk the other team and build the storyline. And someone comes over and like picks their opponent and it's like, oh, and you get the crowd reaction and everything. Um, it's that element that I think that raised it beyond oh, this is just two StarCraft players in a tournament. And yeah. that for me is what made a lot of that more appealing. The storytelling, the way they did it, was just naturally so much cooler than just we're putting on a StarCraft tournament. And for me, that's probably what gave it the most longevity. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a lot of things to talk about as far as why Brood War Pro League was was the way it is. Um, but certainly, like, the team dynamic is... Um, I, think, I, I don't think you can argue against it. Teams... A fully functioning team, I think, is better for like competitive environment and fan base growing. Uh, even though I know like like fighting games don't really have that type of team camaraderie. Um, you can sure. individually like people who are on Cloud Nine because they're on Cloud Nine, but it's not like you're gonna cheer for the team of Cloud Nine Super Smash Bros. Brothers, Super Smash Bros. Players. There we go. <laughs> That's Anyways. I have the same problem with um, player unknowns, battlegrounds, battlegrounds. So. <laughs> yes exactly the ATM <laughs> machine um so I, anyways but moving on from that kind of just general thought cloud uh i, I do want to ask some specifics here for the the last couple of minutes of the the podcast we've gone over a little bit um but you know specifically what would you say advice for those who they've kind of accepted that they they don't want to or they cannot go into esports full-time they have this nice day job they want to continue working that or again, they figure that they can't make esports work. What would you say about right. that ability to make the the time? How did you make that work? Uh, well, I think the two biggest pieces of advice I would give. The first is get involved and stay involved with games that you love, that you enjoy playing or you enjoy watching. Um, one of the gigs I thoroughly enjoy, um, that I still regularly go to is Luca Comics and Games. Yeah, once a year in Italy, um, it's like the second biggest Comic-Con in the world after San Diego. And I, oh. I've transitioned, uh, in the last couple of years from just being a caster to generally being like a stage host as well. And since about 2017, I've stage hosted their event, which is in the literally in a deconsecrated cathedral. That's where they set up the esports stage. The acoustics are amazing. The atmosphere is fantastic. And I host, uh, I think one point I hosted like Rocket League and Quake Champions as well. And Rocket League and Quake Champions are two games that I do not play. And if I were to play, I would be terrible. But they are possibly my two favorite esports that I don't play that I thoroughly enjoy watching. So I'd come off the stage introducing whoever it was and instead of having a break or having lunch or going off and doing whatever until I'm required on the stage, I'm glued to what's going on and listening to the casters backstage. And I don't, I don't, sometimes I forgot to take a toilet break because I was just so enthralled. It's like, Oh, it's the end of the match. I need to go back on stage. Whoops. Um, do what, do what you are passionate about and do what you enjoy. <clears throat> because the biggest problem with not being full-time no, the biggest challenge with not being full-time is that I will always continue to hold myself to the same standard um, or as close to as possible to people who are full-time in the industry and are proper S-tier, ridiculously good at what they do. I um, mean, any eSport, I'm sure anyone can rattle off a number of names and they would be absolutely spot on. 
So how do you stay within touching distance of these fantastic people without having the number of hours to put in? It means that when you do a VOD review of yourself, you need to carve time out and make sure that you can accomplish in two hours what someone else might accomplish in eight. It might mean not going out drinking on a Saturday night on a weekend and staying in and reviewing your VOD from Friday. The only way you'll be habitually able to make those sacrifices is if you thoroughly enjoy what you're doing. So pick the games you love the most and go after the stuff you want to do. And there, and ergo, be okay with occasionally saying no to something that you don't think would be particularly up your street. Because if you feel compelled to say yes to everything, that's when over time, the quality of everything you do can start to decrease a bit. Right, um, yeah. And then uh, the second bit of advice I would give is even though... Um, you're competing with people who are full-time and are good at what they do in the industry, it's always better and nicer just as a human being. Think of uh, think of these people as your friends and your colleagues as opposed to competition because two, I would rather listen to two gold-level casters with insane chemistry all day over listening to two GMs giving me dry analysis of something. 100% of the time, I don't care what the esport is. That will always be true. And the friendlier you are, the more embracing you are of those around you, regardless of their status, you will end up working with them better. Mm -hmm. And a rising tide lifts all ships. You'll look better. You'll learn faster. They'll look better. You'll get hired more. And you won't even have to think about the process. So that that would be the advice I would give. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, always being open for feedback as well as conversations and 100%. a little bit of humility uh, will always get you kind of far in the in, in the green rooms as well as in life. Um, I do have a question kind of off of that, though. Have you ever really, you know, have to talk about specifics, obviously, don't say any names, but have you ever had someone who kind of like you got the feeling or they straight up told you that they didn't want yeah. you to be there? because you're not full-time, you're not passionate enough about the eSport that you're you're working for? I've had the feeling that certain, uh, that certain talent might not like me, mm. but I've never actually been told that. So I think it's more, so rather than take it personally, I think it's more of a, um, I'm more used to working with someone else and therefore it requires a little bit more effort when someone I don't normally work with is also in the room. Uh, I don't, but no, I don't think I haven't had, uh, anyone come or other talent come up to me before and say, I like words to the effect of, I'd rather you not be here or why are yeah. you here or anything like that. Um, it, I, I would say the circles that I choose to put myself in are generally quite respectful and supportive of each other. Obviously it's not a hundred percent. Like I've mentioned the heroes of the storm example, where rather than have to deal with potential situations like that on the line i chose to walk away mm -hmm. um but i'm thinking back to like starcraft overwatch now with PUBG, there's a lot of competition for a very small number of places uh but i think i can quite confidently say i've enjoyed working with almost everyone i've ever had to sit next next to on a desk so Maybe I'm lucky in that regard, or maybe the people I'm working with are holding back their feelings and not telling me what they <laughs> really think, Jaro. But uh, I no, I, I think that aspect's actually been been all right for me. Yeah, I kind of asked as a um, 
you know, a, a, a kind of a, a teaser, I suppose, can't get too much into it for people who might be concerned of doing this, you know, so uh, you haven't experienced it, which if, if someone's out there is thinking like, well, I can't devote as much time as that other guy. And what if I get there and they don't like me? Like I'm kind of like ostracized. Sure. Um, so for, with you talking about it, you haven't had that experience. Hopefully that at least alleviates some fear. You know, yes. whatever you're getting into, there's a higher chance that people are going to be nice and polite and helpful uh, than a bunch of uh, elitist douchebags. So, you know, that's nice. And then if you, if you do have any advice for that kind of feeling of, I suppose, a little bit of imposter syndrome, um, then, you know, feel free to share on that as well. People who just kind of right. will automatically believe, regardless of the contrary, people are judging me because I'm not full time. There's going to be people out there who have that in the back of their mind all the time. And I still have that in the back of my mind all the time. Like mm. I recently, as in like last year, year and a half, um, thought that uh, there was one particular member of talent who I won't name, but someone I look up to. And I was worried that they didn't like me very much. And mainly because outside of events, we didn't really talk to each other in terms of feedback in events. It was all very super slick and professional. Um, and independently speaking to other people who know this talent, they go, oh yeah, they're like that with everyone. They just do that all the time. And it's and I've spent 18 months with that thought being fostered in my head going, oh, I wonder if this is bad. And it turns out, unless they're really good at hiding something, that actually this is nothing at all and I've made it all up. Um, but look, in any industry, you're going to have people who are assholes. It happens. It's the same in esports. It's the same in your desk job. It's the same if you're volunteering for a great cause or charity, wherever you happen to live locally. It doesn't matter where you are. Um, good people can do dick things and horrible people can do good things. And there will always be a mix of those people everywhere you go, if you meet enough people and it's, it's unpleasant, but it's a fact of life and that's okay. Um, being mature about it and saying, that's okay. I just need to focus on what I'm doing best. Uh, and you know, exceptions made for someone you literally have to spend six hours of your day with every day, in which case maybe a, a quiet conversation needs to be had somewhere or things like that. Um, you don't have to deal with it any differently. Deal with it like you would dealing with someone in any other aspect of your life. And more likely than not, um, sweaty esports nerd who you think doesn't like you will probably appreciate that you're dealing with it that way. Mm. Yeah, good advice. And uh, a good stopping point as well. So excellent little life advice. As you said, it applies broadly to everything you're going to do. Confrontations sure. are going to be had and a big part of, of growing up and maturing, not to get too Sesame Street here, um, is is learning <laughs> how to deal with it in a, in a way that uh, if they don't like you, they can't help but respect you. It's kind of exactly. the best result. Yes. Um, so yeah. Uh, so with the end of the podcast, I always want to give room for you to shout out whatever you're doing. You know, any shows will be on, any streams you might be doing. So where pe people can find you. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, this has been uh, quite eye-opening even for me. I'm like thinking back to stuff that I haven't thought about in quite a while and sort of bringing the positives and the lessons from that. So it's really nice to have that front of mind again. Thank you. Um, so I'm, uh, I tend to stream on my own channel on Jorasar and I'm Jorasar conveniently on all social media because no one else is silly enough to have the same name, which is awesome. Um, but I think the one thing I would like to shout out is at the moment, I started in the pandemic and I'm continuing um, twice a month on the first and third Fridays. Uh, I run an online trivia night or a pub quiz 
um, purely to raise money for charity with a small group of us who are volunteering to put this on. The last one was last night. So the fact that I'm doing this semi hungover is like excellent. Um, <laughs> and if you go to virtual-quizzes.com, you can see when and where to find it. It's seven o'clock UK time, eight o'clock Central European time on the first and third Fridays of every month. It is the only thing I do where I put more than 10 hours of prep into each broadcast and do not get paid for it, but I love it to bits. It's really fun. Chat gets to make me drink. There's a hydrate button. They can force me to take sips of my drink. Uh, fun is had by all, and it is always um, purely for charity. So while I am doing other work in the esports space, and hopefully uh, I get hired to do a whole bunch more in the future, I feel like that's the one I want to shout out. Nice. Yeah, very wholesome. So that sounds like a lot of fun, too. I think that's a great idea. Come along. It's middle yeah. of the day Friday for you, admittedly, rather than in the evening. <laughs> but definitely try and come along. Put a team together. Yeah, just, uh, you know, drink drink if you if you want to at work. Just be really um, discreet. About it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> no. So, yeah, that's it. Thank you so much again for coming on uh, for episode 61. And thanks to everyone out there who uh, watches and or listens, both, I suppose, uh, to the podcast. Uh, thank you to everyone who supports on the Patreon, uh, to Shane and Vlad IV for co-producing the podcast and Barrett for reaching out and helping with all things general to the podcast, as well as those who are on the patreon.com slash zombie grub. Uh, that go a little bit above and beyond above and beyond on their support. So Nick, Finney, Steven, E.T., Ravi, Barrett, and Cuddle Bunny, thank you guys very much. And I hope to see you all back for episode 62. Bye, guys. <laughs>